I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Revelation 1. The New York Times bestselling author, professor, speaker, Brene Brown, has repeatedly proven over the years that vulnerability is the number one way in which we build trust with others and truly grow, both as individuals and on the organizational level as well. As counterintuitive as this theory sounds to us at first, it most certainly is the way in which all human beings are wired. So I'm going to be a bit vulnerable here with you for a moment. My intention here is to simply let you in a bit closer in order to connect with you and you with me that we might share in the togetherness of the gospel. Before I say anything else, though, I want to acknowledge that at the end of the day, you and I are not so different from each other. Sure, we come from different families, have differing levels of education, live in different neighborhoods, and like different kinds of food, music, and entertainment, but to be human instantly implies that we all have the same needs. Needs surrounding love, comfort, and a place to belong. Needs of food, clothing, shelter, and work. Needs for friends and family. Needs of rest and recreation. Our deepest fundamental need is reconciliation with God through Christ Jesus. And so as I open up, my hope is that this would simply provide you a sort of position where you can plant your foot and get a little more leverage as you climb up this mountain we all call life. I grew up in a good home with a family for which I am forever grateful. No, we were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Much like your family, we had our mistakes, our secrets, our dysfunctions, and our shortcomings. Like all families, we struggled to communicate and understand each other. Guess what? Now having a family of my own, those same struggles still pop up. Maybe you can relate. The older I get, the more I understand my mom, and my dad, and my brother. And as I understand them, the more I really appreciate them. I'm also understanding myself too. Why do I think the way I think or feel what I feel or do the things that I do? All my life, from childhood up to the present moment, I have struggled with something that tends to be a bit taboo in the church. And I'm okay with admitting that here anyway. I battle anxiety. Maybe you can relate. Everyone struggles with something. For me, it's always been anxiety. I'm grateful for my parents who really tried to understand what was going on with me. I'm thankful for teachers who were patient and compassionate toward an anxious little boy. Sometimes help was offered and it was great, and other times things went from bad to worse. In the fourth grade, my anxiety was really getting the best of me day by day by day. There was a consistent fear racing through me. A fear of not measuring up. A fear of being a grave disappointment to God. A fear that things were not going to go well just because I'm Alex. The stories we are told, or the stories we tell ourselves, are so very important. They shape so much of who we are and who we become. This is why we need a better story, a truer story. 
in order for it to speak louder than the false narratives that swirl around us each day. A story that says, no, that's not true. You do belong. Well, the fear finally got to a point in which I was breaking down, not just on the inside, but on the outside too. I felt like there was a balloon inside my chest that just kept expanding and expanding until it would finally burst. Eventually, my breakdowns became a daily occurrence in which I would find myself crying in the bathroom or at my desk uncontrollably. My teacher did what she thought would be helpful. She got an index card and wrote a few sentences on it. Sentences that said things like, Take a breath. You are okay. Whatever's bothering you right now is going to work out just fine. She asked me, Alex, do you have a paperweight at home? I said, yeah, we do. Bring it in tomorrow. So, the next day I did. She taped the index card to the top right-hand corner on my school desk and told me to cover it with the paperweight. This was going to serve as my grounding, my story, my escape. The sentences were there to help me any time I could feel a breakdown coming on. What a creative, loving gesture to make. All I have to do is slide the stone back, and I'd be okay. I liked her idea very much, but I quickly learned that being a nine-year-old with a paperweight from the Federal Credit Union on your desk was really bizarre. Nobody else in my class had a paperweight. Nobody else had problems like me, or at least they didn't let it out the way I did paperweight drew attention to what I wanted to keep covered up. Sometimes a kid would steal the paperweight, exposing Miss Shirley's steps for me to calm down. Of course, this was embarrassing. The stone paperweight quickly became a symbol of shame to me. I didn't know how to say it back then, but now, looking back, that's exactly what was going on in my little world. I'm sure Brene Brown would agree. I distinctly remember the day that I got rid of the paperweight and the index card. I felt the dread, the sadness, the depressing panic coming on. And so I simply stood up and walked out of the classroom in the middle of the lesson. I went straight to the boys' room, slumped down in the corner, folded my legs up in my arms, and buried my face in my elbow and began crying. A moment later, Miss Shirley came in and said, Alex, what's going on? Are you okay? I looked up at her, all disheveled and upset, and said, I'm freaking out. I'm just freaking out. Can't you see that? I am freaking out. What about you? No, I'm not asking if you had anxiety as a kid like I did. But if you had the moment in which you've slumped down against the wall and found yourself looking up at someone who loves you and wants to help and saying those same words, I'm freaking out. 2020, the year that will forever go down in history books as a curse word for many, has certainly afforded us plenty of opportunities to come to the end of ourselves and freak out, hasn't it? Considering the pandemic, racial injustice, tent cities, chaos at the border, an election that has us all on pins and needles, and the stuff that we carry 
day-to-day in our own personal lives is enough to make anyone freak out. We can feel it in the air. So many people are angry, anxious, and frustrated. Who would have thought that we modern people in North America would find ourselves scrolling through our news feeds whispering, Maranatha, with such fervor? Proud, educated, sophisticated urbanites who should have it all together are finding out just how fragile we really are. This year leveled everyone. Suddenly it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You're wearing a mask if you want into the grocery store. Suddenly we're slapped in the face with yet another act of racial injustice and there's no denying it. No matter if you vote blue or red or some other color, it's everywhere. Suddenly we're all looking around at one another and actually seeing each other, maybe for the first time. Our busy selves are now making eye contact because there's nothing else to contact other than with eyeballs. Just two eyes peeping up and popping over a mask. Have you had that experience yet this year where you really make eye contact with someone else? Maybe it's a stranger? When that moment happens to you, and I hope it does, you actually see that person and you know that that person has real needs, the same needs that you do. The average person spends over two and a half hours a day on social media over 17 hours a week it's a part-time job that the majority of us don't get paid to do and as we scroll and read and like and share and argue we work ourselves up the mobile phone is now more or less a new appendage stuck to your body 24 hours a day and this new physical addiction is causing us to freak out what are we to do with this election As Christians, there's moments in which we align ourselves a little more over here, and then other times we align better over there. And because the stakes are so high, our emotions are all over the map. Each day we feel a little less home here. Because the reality of our heavenly citizenship is pressing upon us like never before. To use Peter's language, we're sojourners on this earth for a brief moment. As the sojourning exiles of Jesus, we're called to fight for justice and pursue peace. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves and pray for those who would persecute us. We're called to speak the truth in love. These callings that rest on us are not new or unique. For 2,000 years, God has determined that his children not feel totally at home in the here and now. There's a holy restlessness within each of God's children, and that's because the Spirit groans within us, as St. Paul says. We are all longing for everything to be made new again. I want to encourage you today from the words that Jesus spoke to St. John on the Isle of Patmos in the Revelation. John was considered an outlier, abandoned, one who went against the social, political, and religious grain of his day as he followed Jesus, not only as a rabbi, but confessed Jesus to be Lord of all. Jesus was not merely the one in charge of Christians, but he is Lord of the whole world, including Caesar. Jesus appeared to John in all of his glory, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, white hair, a sword flickering for a tongue. 
and his voice sounded like 10,000 waterfalls. John was utterly awestricken. And so he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John was overcome. This Jesus is the same one who he had leaned back on just years prior at the Last Supper. This is the one who gave him the name Beloved. This is the one who was nailed to a cross and buried in the grave, who had risen and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Now here he is, Jesus, in all of his glory, and John fell down at his feet as though he were dead. A few weeks ago, I was on a jog at Discovery Park, and I tripped and fell. It's one thing to trip and tumble. It's another thing to fall down as though dead. The book of Revelation could have ended right there in the 17th verse of chapter 1, and that would have been more than sufficient. To look once upon the Lord Jesus and be overcome to the point of death would have been a fabulous ending. But of course... That's far from the end. John then writes, He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. There he is, Jesus, physically touching John. Touch is important because in touching John, he was affirming him, comforting him, and taking away the dread that comes with being in the presence of of capital B beauty. Jesus speaks, do not be afraid. This year has caused tremendous fear in each of us, but Jesus would have us look and listen again. Do not be afraid. This is not a suggestion or wishful thinking or some kind of religious wish it away ism. Instead, this is an order from the Master Himself. The one who has been resurrected from the grave is still in control. The emotions that drums up from without and the fear that can well up from within, Jesus says, no, not you. Do not give in. Do not be afraid. But how, Jesus? How can I not be afraid with so much going on in this world? Our family is fighting. Our friends don't see eye to eye. Christians are divided everywhere we look. Why should I not be afraid? Aren't you afraid, Jesus? Have you seen who's running for office? Are you aware of all that's going on down here? Jesus responds, of course I'm not afraid. The very worst thing that could have happened in human history has already happened. Beloved, Good Friday is in the rear view mirror. I am the first. Before a star was hung in the sky, I am first. Before a breath was taken, I am first. Before a tree bloomed in the Garden of Eden, I am first. Before Donald Trump, I am first. Before Joe Biden, I am first. Before George Washington, I am first. Before the Civil War, I am first. Before MLK, I am first. Before Abraham Lincoln, I am first. Before Harriet Tubman, I am first. Before Neil Armstrong, I'm first. Before Bill Gates, I am first. Before Jeff Bezos, I am first. 
before Hollywood, I am first. Before SportsCenter, I am first. Before the pandemic, I am first. Before the shutdown, I am first. Before the election, I am first. Jesus is first. There's nobody like Jesus. Blessed saints, don't forget that Jesus is first, no matter what. And there's more good news for you. Jesus said to John, and he says again to you today, I am the last. After every empire has crumbled, Jesus is last. After every victory, Jesus is last. After every loss, Jesus is last. After every modern invention, Jesus is last. After every failure, Jesus is still last. After every vaccine, Jesus is last. After every war has been fought, Jesus is last. After every election, Jesus is last. After every tear has been cried, Jesus is last. After every religion that has been practiced, Jesus is last. After every philosophy that has been exhausted, Jesus is last. After every idea that has been pondered, Jesus is last. After every book that has been written, Jesus is last. After every hardship that has been endured, Jesus is last. After every difficult day of 2020, Jesus is last. After all is said and done and world history is folded up like a small piece of paper and tucked away in the front shirt pocket of God, Jesus is the last man standing. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Beloved, Jesus is the first and last. Jesus is the living one. He was dead, and now he is alive forever and ever. Press the words of Jesus into your soul today. Remember, to be a Christian means that everyone has a paperweight on their desk. Slide it back and see that the stone itself was rolled away and be reminded of the Savior's power and love. He has not fallen asleep at the wheel of the universe, nor is he asleep at the wheel of your life. He is as strong and as kind as ever. He's got you. He's got this. He's got us. Amen. Amen.